Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snack Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Zella made a beat, so it's go time. Welcome back, Grizz Nation, to another edition of the Core 4 Podcast, a, co- a podcast under the Grizzly Bear Blues Podcast Network alongside GVB Live and the 3ND Podcast. Be sure you check both of those episodes out because Joe had Sam Pacini from The Athletic on his GVB Live and Justin Lewis had Drew Hill from The Daily Miffian on 3ND. So be sure you check out those episodes. They're great episodes. Highly recommend. And... Um, Grizzly Bear Blues is a blog under SB Nation. You can find it on the web at grizzlybearblues.com or on Twitter at SB and Grizzlies. I'm your host, Parker Fleming, and with me today is none other than Nathan the Chess Pass Chester. Nate, what up? Man, I just feel a little bit of a tingle when I hear that nickname every single time. Like, it, it just gets me giddy for what we're about to talk about always. You, you know, Nate, I do need – I needed a little pick-me-up, to be honest, because – What's going I made on, a mistake man? yesterday on Twitter. Wait, you do what on Twitter? Made a mistake. What'd you make a mistake about? So do you know that screenshot of the Bradley Beal trade that I shared from Bleacher Report? Uh-huh. So for one, I should have made a poll because I think I got like 120 replies on it. Yeah, you were getting a good engagement. <laughs> what? You are getting good engagement on it. I saw you had like 30 retweets last time I looked at it. Right, and then... A lot were hell no. Like, granted, I'm going to no, know, but I'm also not like a hell no. No, I agree. I'm same place. That's what you get. That's what you got to give up for a superstar. But the amount of people that thought that was me that suggested the trade, that I was for the trade, all I said was, hey, what do y'all think about this? I, For the first time, I had a message request about that was basically hate towards something I said. I had somebody with nine followers tell me to go kill myself. <laughs> you got an angry DM. <laughs> yeah, he told me to go kill myself. And I was like, you know, like, don't say that. You don't know what someone's going through. Like, <laughs> I'm not going through anything. It wasn't my trade. So, yeah. So, so let me, wait, wait, was it a Grizzlies fan who told you that? Yeah, a Grizzlies fan did. So, so let me get – all right, so first off, I want to clarify that I'm against the trade too. You, you could probably talk me into it if it were to happen, but I honestly think you're tanking your wing depth 
and most of your best draft capital for a guy who's going to be on the wrong side of 30 by the end of his contract. That's why I oppose it. And I think the sum of their parts they'd be giving up or not or greater in impact than Bradley Beal is alone in a vacuum. So I think it's like a very fair question to ask, though. It's not a hell no for me either. But with that in mind, the fact that there is some nuance to that question, I can't imagine that someone felt so strongly about it that you who let's just say you were wanting that to happen that you're arguing for it you're arguing for the Grizzlies to acquire an all-star swing man who averaged 29 points a game this past year and by (laughs) suggesting that possibility someone tells you to kill yourself that's a bit harsh Brandon Clark's had a great year but he hadn't been that great (laughs) yeah I mean I, I yeah that's just, now I get like DMs like that all the time like probably like once every two weeks for me but it's usually uh, something related to faith and or politics that I posted that I get that response for not anything about the Grizzlies usually yeah I I don't know I don't know why many people thought it was me that suggested the trade I'm in the boat where you replaced Jonas Valanciunas like have Brandon Clark instead of – or no, have Jonas Valanciunas instead of Brandon Clark or throw in another pick, then sure. But also, I mean, I, it's actually really weird because – and I guess you could tell the nature of the trade by it. I had one – I have two Wizards people on my timeline that one's overly optimistic and one's about like us. So he thinks like – one of them thinks John Wall can come back and get the Wizards going on a run. He's and he said that the trade was not enough. And then the one that's about like us, um, one of my friends from my fraternity, he uh, he said absolutely all day. I think that's a great deal for the Wizards in a vacuum. Um, I'm not sure you're getting a great. You're getting two great young players. I'll make a, a distinction in tiers. I think Clark is in his own tier as far as the actual players involved in that trade. Clark could be a potential all-star. Do I think he will be? Probably not. He'll probably range more towards the elite role player side of the spectrum. But you have a great young player who could be a potential all-star, have a Draymond Green-type impact possibly, and then you get two great first-round picks to go along with it and two other good young players at Justice Winslow and Dylan Brooks. If you're looking for return on a star player, and Bradley Beal is not in the Anthony Davis tier of return that you're going to get, for someone like Beal, I don't think you'll be able to get a better return than that. So from the Wizards end of the spectrum, I like it. I would probably do it if I was in their position. And let's just be real. I like John Wall. I always have. And I hope he comes back and is still able to be a top 15 point guard, like you've said before. But for a point guard who relied so much on speed, agility, explosiveness, and just overall athleticism, coming off an Achilles injury, John Wall is not going to be what it was. He, he is not going to be 100% of what he was. Like I can say that with – a great degree of certainty. So if your hesitation on the wizard side for that trade is you're not quite ready to give up Beal for that kind of return because you still think Wall and Beal could form a one-two punch that can get you to the Eastern Conference Finals in the future, um, you can go ahead and prepare me for cold takes exposed if you want to. That's not going to happen at Wall. I feel that. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a discussion for probably a text message. But um, – I'm in the boat where 
Granted, probably for another show, but use the assets to trade up because not only do you not have to give up Brandon Clark and you might have to throw in Dylan Brooks. If you were to trade him to move up into say the 2022 draft, then that's an, he's an expiring contract. That's enticing to teams. You would have to do that. You can give up balance. But the key is you don't have to give up Brandon Clark. And so if you can move up and also have a guy that could end up becoming an elite scorer on the wing alongside John Morant and Jan Jackson Jr. while also being on a rookie deal for four years, I don't think you can do much better than that. As opposed to paying, like you said, paying between 35 and $37 million for, granted, he's a guy in his prime, he's a top 15, top 15, 20 guy right now, and he fits a need. But by the time you're reaching that apex where Ja and Jaron are going to be at the top of the Western Conference. Will he still be that good? Will that he, will he yeah. still be that third fiddle? Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's, that's I, it for me. Yeah, I, I agree with that for sure. And, you know, we're in such a rush to think of these blockbuster moves. And maybe that's because in recent years, the Grizzlies have not had the assets and draft capital to even be involved in those type of conversations. So now we're essentially drunk with power just a little bit for what the Grizzlies could do with their various other assets. But I've advocated for this all year long, and I'm still advocating it for uh, now and like part of my opposition to that trade right now is I'm taking a wait and see approach. Um, they have a great young core of guys and you we've talked about it before. You said this Grizzlies team has better chemistry than any Grizzlies team in franchise history. I don't think that's a hot take. I agree with that. You have great chemistry with these young guys. You have a great core of young guys beyond just the obvious potential superstars and Jaron Jackson and John Morant. So let's let this settle for a little bit. Let, let's let this ride and see where they can go together. And if in a year John Wall comes back and the Wizards are still bad and Bradley Beal is still averaging 25 to 30 points a game, and no matter what happens next year, Brandon Clark is still generally what he is, even if he's a little bit better. Dylan Brooks and DeAnthony Melton. Well, Melton went in the initial trade, but – Brooks is still more or less what he is, and Winslow is more or less what he was in Miami, then I think you could revisit that trade in and of itself. But take the wait-and-see approach. Yeah, I agree. I, I also think like a, another Eastern Conference team is going to slide in, but oh well. Yep. Well, anyways, back to our dynamic young core, the team with outstanding chemistry, the Memphis Grizzlies. They are coming back to basketball in about a month. I know there's all this concern right now with the spikes, but I'm no medical expert at all. But, I mean, it seems nice that – great, I don't want anybody getting COVID-19, but if it's happening, this is the time now because you don't want it to be where it's a week before and it's to be quarantined for two weeks. And I I don't know. That's just where I stand. So – this is some frustration that I've had. And so I sent you the joke yesterday where someone said, whoa, just going to be reading positive COVID-19 cases. Like it's the oh, NBA yeah. draft that he's calling out picks and reporting. Keep, keep, out, uh, keep that private. Come on. Let's keep that private. Yeah. But we, I, we, the reaction cannot be every time someone tests positive for COVID-19, whether now or all the way up to Orlando or even while they're in Orlando, the reaction can't be, Shut it down. This is why we need to shut it down. 
like the NBA is a business that is here to make money, and they are trying to prioritize health and safety by the way they're setting all this up. But ultimately, the reason they're doing this for is money, and they're not trying to hide that fact by any stretch of the imagination. It would be catastrophic for them financially to not finish the season and could possibly lead into a lockout for next year uh, by avoiding the current CBA, which is a separate discussion entirely. But this is what we're signing up for. People are going to test positive with this virus, even congregating in like somewhat smallish groups like they will be in Orlando. And they're definitely going to be testing positive right now. Would I be shocked if John Morant tested positive? He's been playing pickup every day and like the closed gym that apparently only Drew Hill can get into as far as Memphis media members are concerned. Um But these guys have been playing pickup. You see Trey Young doing it. You see many other players playing pickup. Hey, I saw a joke that said Nikola Jokic didn't actually diet. Like, he just got COVID-19, and that's why he lost all the weight. (laughs) Well, well, uh, if that same notification comes out about Mark, we know the deal. Uh, (laughs) Mark Mark looks weird, man. (laughs) He looks weird. But uh, anyways, back to the main topic of discussion for the show is the rotations. So... I've started a little bit of a debate because from what I've always seen with this Memphis Grizzlies team, and it's something I want to write about later this week on GBB, is Coach Jenkins plays an 11-man rotation. It has worked for the large part. When you're not playing Marco Guterich and Solomon Hill, it works. But the Grizzlies, they have a deep team where you can realistically play all the way down to your 13th guy. Like Anthony Toller, he's, well, Anthony Toller is probably the 12th guy and Grayson Allen's 13, but you can get all the way down to 13 if you need to. You said that. What? I can't believe you just admitted that. Eh, I mean, it, it's not necessarily it, – it, it goes either way. I, I can yeah. have Grayson 12, yeah. Toller 12. It doesn't matter. But we all know what happens in the playoffs and everything is the rotations get smaller – primarily because you've spent most of your season preserving your star players in a way and testing your depth. And now you're like, okay, it's time to win a championship. Our starters are playing 35 minutes, 30 to 35 more than likely. But it, I, I still think that 11 can work and that you can play John Morant and Jaron Jackson Jr. 34 minutes a night with an 11-man rotation. Uh, I've done a lot of research today. I did a giant rabbit hole in preparation for this piece. 11 is tricky. Eight's, eight's not going to happen. It's a non-starter. Eight, you can't do eight. Like Gorgie Ding would be the odd man out, and you need your backup five out there. Well, it's not just that. It's the wing trio of Winslow Brooks and Melton is very good. Like, that's a pretty solid foundation for a wing rotation, even though you're in a rebuild. But here's the thing that's the truth, is Justice Winslow is coming off a back injury. I don't see them playing him more than 30 minutes. And DeAnthony Melton is the size of a point guard. Uh, You can't play him at the three. Now, granted, if he was like Lonzo Ball size or Drew Holiday's size – you could probably get away with it because he could play the three, but you cannot run a three-guard lineup of Jaw, Tyus, and Nutland. It's just tiny. We were killed defensively. 
it honestly kind of looks like the Memphis Tigers three guard lineup with Harris, Lomax, and uh, Boogie. But anyways, I don't think they'll make me vomit blood quite as much as that three man lineup for the Tigers did. Yeah, but <laughs> one thing I noticed in that eight man lineup is it put a lot of pressure on Dylan Brooks because he had to play big minutes at the two and the three. So you're having to play him the same amount of times you're playing John Jaron, which I kind of calculated up to be about 36 to 38 minutes. So you, you mentioned, you kind of alluded to this when you were talking about an eight man rotation, you're leaving out Gorgie Dang. Ideally you're going to have a nine or a 10 man rotation. Yeah. Agreed. And I just think there are sacrifices to that. So, I mean, Joe, Joe Mullinax wrote a piece on it today with Josh and Kyle. You mentioned Gorgie Dang. To start with those three, you obviously prioritize Gorgie, right? Of course you do. Here's my philosophy, and you've heard me preach about it before, is that when it enters crunch time, the postseason, you absolutely want to shorten your rotation because just because you can go 11 deep, which can be very helpful over the course of a long season and how you're keeping guys' legs is fresh. And it's just good for team chemistry. It's good for guys at the end of the bench to be getting consistent minutes on a nightly basis, even if it's just spot minutes and they're not like a truly crucial contributor to the rotation. But it's very beneficial in that way. But when it becomes crunch time, when you're getting into the part of the season or into the postseason where – okay, it's do or die time now. We have absolutely got to be at our best, and we got to absolutely um, win as many games as we possibly can now because it is crunch time. I do think in a vacuum you should look to shorten the rotation. Now, for the Grizzlies, in a vacuum, you cannot go eight deep. You can't. I, and, and really, honestly, I don't think any team should go eight deep, even in the postseason, unless your ninth guy is just terrible. Like, you just cannot – rely on him consistently in any sort of way or or if you have two guys like two superstar guys that can go the distance for 40 minutes like a like a LeBron and AD or a Giannis and Middleton or Simmons I mean Embiid really can't never mind but you you get the point though yeah here's where I'm at as far as the Grizzlies are concerned and the most important thing for me when scheming out lineups and the situation they're going into because I guess you might as well consider these eight games going into the playoffs, the playoffs in and of themselves, because that's essentially what they represent. And there's this certain sense of it where, you know, no one has played organized professional basketball games in over four months. So you do have to keep guys' legs fresh, and you've made that point before. So that's something you need to take into consideration here. But um, to go 11 deep, it means that you're having to find minutes for someone like Kyle Anderson. And Kyle Anderson is a solid player in a vacuum who brings several valuable skills to the court. He's a good playmaker. He's a good, versatile defender. He can guard about three positions. And, like, he's valuable in that way and how he is used. It's how he is used and maximized that's important to me. And I think you cannot properly maximize Kyle Anderson with the 11 guys who could be crucial contributors in your rotation. And what I mean by that is, so with the addition of Winslow, um, 
Kyle Anderson was able to play the four for a good portion of the year before the Grizzlies acquired Gorgie Ding because they didn't have a true backup five and Brandon Clark had to eat those minutes at the five. And he struggled there defensively because he just doesn't quite have the frame yet to be able to contend with people at the rim um, who play the five that consistently. But since Clark was playing the five and he would struggle defensively there, it allowed Kyle to come off the bench and play the four. And for Kyle to be maximized in the modern NBA with his deficiencies, he's not a very good shooter. He's got slow feet. He needs to be playing the four because he could be a good defender in the right matchups. But if you're putting him against a quick-footed wing or a quick-footed guard at the two or the three, he's been found to struggle. His wingspan can help mitigate those struggles to a certain degree, but he does struggle to a certain degree there. And he's not as required, he's not as required to provide spacing from the wings as he is at the four. So maximizing Kyle Anderson, to me, you have to play him at the four. Um, they were able to use him at the four once Jared Jackson and Brandon Clark both went out with injury. So he was able to find success there before the suspension of the season. But with everyone healthy, with everyone back, and you have now have the capacity to play an 11-man rotation, if you're going to find even spot minutes for Kyle Anderson, you're going to have to do it at three because there's no place for him in the starting lineup, obviously. And coming off the bench, you have Brandon Clark playing the four. You have Gorgie Ding playing the five. And we've already discussed you cannot maximize Kyle Anderson in the modern NBA at three with his deficiencies. You can't do that. So, to me, that eliminates him from the rotation going into these eight games, going into the playoffs, should they make the playoffs. Um, if I had to choose a 10th guy, it'd be Josh Jackson over him. Mm-hmm. But even in the right situations, like if Josh Jackson gets in for a few spot minutes and there's a certain level of chaos to whenever Josh Jackson enters a game, you don't know exactly what's going to happen. You don't know exactly what he's going to do. There might be several times where you've got to say, we've got to stick with nine. Like Josh Jackson isn't helping us tonight. And I, I wrote an article earlier this week praising him for the improvements and strides that he made in the 18 games of the Grizzlies. And I don't see why he can't be a consistent contributor in the rotation as the Tef guy. But um, there is the question about whether they would just be better with going with nine. I, yeah, I understand that. One thing that with Josh Jackson as opposed to Kyle Anderson – and we, we said this on the podcast that had technical difficulties that we couldn't air, is that the difference between Josh Jackson and Kyle Anderson is Josh Jackson could win you a bubble game. Yeah. Because you mentioned there's that little bit of chaos because you don't know what's going to happen. But there it's are some nights where chaos. it's talented chaos. I mean, granted, there could be some nights where it's kind of a disaster. But there's going to be some nights, too, where he's going to come in, he's going to get you – maybe 10 to 12 points. He's going to make a few big plays defensively. He'll make the right pass. And next thing you know, you're either able to sustain a lead and give guys like Justice Winslow and Dylan Brooks and DeAnthony Mellon much needed rest. Or other side, he just doesn't contribute. And by the time you get to the second half, you shorten that rotation to nine. Yeah. And I kind of compare it to like that chaos factor, that X factor thing with – KCP, um, J.R. Smith, maybe? J.R. I think would be better, even though I almost feel after the, the boneheaded play he made in 2018, I hate comparing anybody's basketball IQ to J.R. Smith. No, it's, it's never IQ. It's just like yeah. skill set. 
yeah, his skill set. He's going to come in and he can win you a game just because he's that talented. But also, there's just a wide spectrum of what he's going to bring you. Yeah, for sure. So I can definitely see that. And um, Jackson could win you a game. He could very well benefit you in any given situation on any given night. But I just don't see how you could consistently seek to use Kyle Anderson instead of Josh Jackson when you're not going to be able to maximize the skill set that Kyle Anderson has. By the very nature of the rotation, you have to play him at three. You don't really have any other choice. So I just can't see you consistently using him because of that. Right. And one thing that is also kind of tough, too, is because you mentioned you got to play Kyle Anderson at the four. And when you are you have Gorgie Dang, you have this solid backup five. But the thing is, you've said it before, you want Jaron Jackson playing 35 minutes a night, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you think Brandon Clark and – what? Fouls permitted. Fouls permitted, yes. <laughs> and and then you want uh, Jonas Valanciunas and Brandon Clark playing about 25 minutes, right? Yep. That leaves 10 minutes for Gorgie Dang. Mm-hmm. Like, is that fine? Is Does that suffice for him? I, I don't really know how to work around that because those are the minutes. Maybe Jaron around 33, 34, maybe not necessarily 35, 36. And if you want to give those extra minutes to Jane, but um, this is when we talk about the Grizzlies depth, this is just a little bit of an embarrassment of riches to a certain degree that you're able to have this kind of problem because I shared this stat on Twitter and I think I shared it with you when I was doing some research on that basketball reference, and it really blows your mind when you think about it. So, Gorgie Dang has played 12 games with the Grizzlies this year, and I don't know the exact number of shots, but I imagine it's a good amount. He's a 6'10", 6'11", big man. Um, 27% of his total shots have been taken right at the rim, so zero to three feet from the basket. Um, finishing at the rim is a very important skill, especially for big men in the NBA. So, he's taking 27% of his shots at the rim. In 12 games, he did not miss a single one. Like, that is absurd when you really think about it. Like, not just one happened to back, bounce off back iron or something like that. He never got blocked there. No, he never missed a single field goal attempt at the rim in 12 games. And he, I believe, if my memory serves me correctly when I was doing my research, he has the lowest opponent field goal percentage on the team. Now, obviously, he had played the entire season, but in the 12 games he played with the Grizzlies, I believe he's holding his matchup to around 39% shooting. So opponent field goal percentage is not an overall indictment of a player's defense, but it does give you a pretty good indicator of how good their individual defense is. And you take all that into account, he helps you so much when he's on the court. He makes the smart plays. He finishes around the basket. He can hit threes. He's a very good and high IQ defender. So I hear what you're saying. You look at the rotation, especially if you're wanting to go 10 or 11 deep and thinking just 10 minutes for him, but you really can't play him at the four, at least not on a consistent basis. And you, Brandon Clark is the utmost priority coming off the bench. Would you play? Uh, yeah, you can't do it. So he's locked into the five, and I don't really see how he can get more minutes than that. Right. I'm looking at cleaning the glass right now, and with shots within four feet, he shot 89%, which was 16 of 18. 
that's absurd. That's, that's good. Absurd. That's really good. And like we've alluded to, this is a problem you're going to have with the Memphis Grizzlies is you're not going to have minutes for Kyle Anderson at the four because you need to give those minutes to Jaron Jackson Jr. and Brandon Clark. Um, I also did factor in some minutes at the five for Jaron Jackson Jr. just because him and Brandon Clark, that's the pairing that you're going to try to have going forward. And there's going to be some nights where Jonas Valanciunas is not going to be your top five guy for the night. It's going to be Ja, Jaron Clark, and then Brooks and either Winslow or yeah, either Winslow or Melton. It's going to like forget even Jang and I'm writing about this dilemma right now. Um, the Jonas Brandon Clark dilemma in and of itself is just fascinating as far as depth is concerned on this team because um, it, it, people who hear this will instantly take their pitchforks out as soon as they hear it. But on a per 36-minute basis, Valanciunas is the most productive big man in franchise history. Um don't argue with me, argue with the numbers. The numbers are what they are. And that's not to suggest that Jonas is better than Zach Randolph or Marcus Hall. He obviously isn't. But um, it does put into context just how impactful and how much of a cornerstone he has been for the Grizzlies this year. And even with that in mind, he more often than not doesn't finish games. He doesn't. That's how good and impactful Brandon Clark has been coming off the bench. And that's why all of this in mind that I don't immediately crap on the suggestion that this is the deepest team in franchise history. Because even when the Grizzlies were winning 55 games and they had veteran experience, they had all-star caliber players, we weren't asking ourselves questions like this as far as guys coming off the bench. We weren't concerned about that. There was never any question um, – as compared to where the tiers of players on this team were and to what roles they were supposed to play. And that may just speak more to the fact that the Grizzlies don't have truly consistent all-stars just yet, like they had at the peak of the grit and grind era. You don't have Marcus All making the all-star team more often than not yet. You don't have Zach Randolph doing the same. You don't have Mike Conley on the edge of those conversations. You have Ja Morant, who will probably soon become a perennial all-star. Jaron Jackson, who could hopefully get there at some point. Maybe it's just because there's not as much of a distinction between the top of the roster and the middle tier to bottom of the roster there was back there. But it's a fascinating discussion all the same. Yeah, I agree. So I'm going to be writing this probably by Friday is what is the ideal target number for you with the rotation number? Honestly, I think it would be 10. Um, if Josh Jackson can be what he was in the 18 games he played with the Grizzlies and um, he was the leading scorer in March, he stepped up in the absence of Brandon Clark and Jaron Jackson and provided production the Grizzlies absolutely needed to stay afloat during that time. Josh Jackson was very crucial to making sure the Grizzlies are still in a spot right now. He really was. And if he can be that guy going forward, then I absolutely want him being used consistently in the rotation going into these eight games and into the playoffs. So I think ideally speaking, I'd like to go 10. But I do recognize the possibility that you may want to limit it to nine based off whatever situations that you're encountering. Right. I think 10 would be nice. And if you were to go nine – it shouldn't be a, a hard nine. It should kind of be situational, yeah. matchup-based. Against the Lakers, you're going to want a nine-man rotation with Gorgie Dang in there instead of Josh Jackson or Kyle Anderson, or vice versa. 
if you're playing someone like Houston or a team that generally runs smaller, you don't want to have a your big man rotation be Jonas, Jaron, Clark, and Gorgie. You're going to want to have Josh Jackson or Kyle Anderson in there as well. And utilize the, versatil- the positional versatility that your wings have. Brooks can play two and three. Winslow can play one through four. Anderson can play three and four. Jackson can play two and three. You got to – I know 11 is kind of unrealistic. I still want to tackle it just because it's something that we might see for a couple games while Jenkins is figuring out his rotation again. Mm-hmm. So, what like, that? that's where I stand. Just I think he, he can go 11 to see where it stands. Just to – I mean, who knows? You, you might come in and – Justice is just not ready, and he comes off the bench. So, but I think honestly, strengths a little bit. You have good depth. You're coming into a situ a unique situation where no one's played in four months, and you arguably have a a really solid one through eleven that can come in and play big minutes. Why not utilize that to your advantage as long as you can? For sure, and. You know, maybe as far as the question about 11 is being concerned, maybe we just need to take Kyle Anderson out of the discussion entirely. That may be unpopular to the Kyle Hive, as we know them, our friends Joe Middlenax and our friends at Fast Break Breakfast. But um, I'd be open to 11 if it's Grayson Allen as the 11th man or even John Conchar. If you – Brandon Abraham is just somewhere giggling to death if he hears me say that. But um, – if I were to tell Brand, uh, John Conchar, hey, you're going to play eight to ten minutes tonight, you're absolutely to take two to three threes or I'm not going to play you the next night, I'd be for it. <laughs> as long as I he mean, increases three-point volume, I'd be for it. Uh, Grayson Allen provides, in theory, an elite skill. His three-point shooting uh, from the month of December on, before he got hurt, he shot um, – I think his shooting splits were about 50-40-90. Um, so if he's going to come out and shoot 40% from three – yeah, I consider using him as the 11th man in the rotation. I just don't understand how you could specifically use Kyle Anderson as the 11th man in that role for the reasons I've already discussed. I understand. Mm-hmm. And it also comes down to, are they going to share minutes with Tyus Jones and DeAnthony Melton? Because I had this tweet a few weeks ago where I said, you can't really go wrong. And people are like, uh, that's debatable. But – it just goes to show you, it doesn't matter who the three is next to D'Anthony Melton or Tyus Jones. If you're playing them in a bench unit, it's going to end up being pretty good. So I, I'm trying to figure this out, but I think Grayson was about a plus 9.5. Josh Jackson was like a plus 15, and Kyle Anderson was like a plus 13. You know, those guys. We, I remember something Mike D'Antoni said um, about – he said it the summer before the 2017-2018 Rockets came together. So it was after they had traded for Chris Paul. And that team is probably top five for best teams that ever win an NBA championship. Like, they were that good, and they would have finished off the Warriors that year if Chris Paul um, hadn't got hadn't tore his hamstring at game six of that series against them. But there's something D'Antoni said back that summer before that season that has stuck with me, and I think it's relevant to the Grizzlies now. Um, 
he was asked about how he would use Chris Paul and James Harden, and he said, I'm going to have a Hall of Fame point guard on the court all 48 minutes. Mm -hmm. And when you really think about that, like you're going to have one of the best floor generals in NBA history commanding your offense, maximizing the skill sets and talents of those around them at all times. You can't undersell that. Now, obviously, the Grizzlies at this moment in time do not have two Hall of Fame point guards. But do they have a collection of two of the best pure point guards in the game today as far as being game managers, as far as maximizing the skill sets of those around them? They do. Tyus Jones and Ja Morant. Um, Tyus Jones, there has not been a point guard that I was able to find in the last 25 years who had a better assist-to-turnover ratio than he had either this year or the year before that. The offense just flows when he's on the court. He knows exactly where everyone needs to be. And I am ashamed that I ever jokingly referred to him as Tony Douglas, as you pointed out to me from earlier this year. I, I weep because of that comment I made at an earlier time. I deserve scorn. I deserve mm -hmm. shame. And then John Morant, the obvious overall generational type impact that he can have on any game. And then when you take into consideration that DeAnthony Melton is a very solid playmaker who makes great reads in his own right, and whether he's playing next to Ja or he's playing next to Tyus coming off the bench, those are the type of playmaking opportunities that you always have in every situation for the Grizzlies. And that improves guys like Josh Jackson. I was having a conversation with Connor Dunning a few days ago about Josh Jackson. He said he was blown away uh, by something in my article because he didn't understand or we were talking about how he had improved so much at finishing at the rim as compared to what he did at Phoenix. And I said, should it really be a surprise? Not only is he playing with actual point guards, something he didn't do in Phoenix, he's playing with some of the best pure point guards in the league, people who know how to fill lanes, uh, players that know how to properly space their teammates. And he's taking advantage of that. He's an example of how – each individual member of this roster has been maximized. Right. And so I do want to clear the air on that last stat I just shared. So Grayson Allen in 222 possessions at the three was a plus 9.5. Josh Jackson at the three was a plus 10.7 at the three with 487 possessions. And then Kyle Anderson, just to make the argument right, I only took his possessions with Tyus Jones and DeAnthony Melton. And at 314 possessions, it was a plus 12.3. Granted, that shows the impact there when top, I think Kyle was around like a minus eight at the three overall. But it goes to show you if any of those guys are sharing the floor with DeAnthony Melton, Tyus Jones, and more than likely Brandon Clark, you're going to get good results. And if you choose to even go 10-man rotation, it's very fluid with those three guys. But – we're almost out of time here, Nate, and there's one more thing I was going to ask you is over under for minutes for Justice Winslow. I want to set it at 28, over or under. I was going to put it at 25. Um, just the um, depth of the team as far as the wing position is concerned and also him coming off um, the backs. Did he have surgery, right? He didn't have – I don't know if he had surgery, but he I did have back a back injury. But um, – I don't want to overemphasize the back injury because, yes, he has not played organized basketball in, I guess, about eight months now. But everyone else also hasn't played organized basketball in about four months now. And 
I think there comes a certain point when you've just been out of it for an extended period. It doesn't matter how long that extended period is. So maybe he's more or less going to be on the same foot as everyone else as far as coming back to play. And if that's the case, then, yeah, probably 28 minutes a game. But I'll put the over under at 25. Uh, I have that same thing. But, uh, Nate, we're about all out of time here. So let the people know where you can find them. You can find me on Twitter at NathanChester24, where you can find my tweets about Grizzlies, about faith, and unfortunately entirely too much about politics. Parker, I'm ready for basketball to come back, man. Like, there's been a void in my social media presence that I've had to fill with politics, and nobody wants that. I don't want to see it either. You don't want to see it either. And you more or less agree with me on a lot of things. Just nobody wants to see it. Yeah. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Paca underscore Flocka, where you don't have to read anything about politics. That's the <laughs> positive side there. Make sure you're following the blog on Twitter at SPN Grizzlies. Lots of great content there. Make sure you're liking, subscribing, downloading, whatever you need to do on the GBB Podcast Network, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Megafin, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Be sure you follow the Twitter at the Core 4 Podcast with the number four. Not the word for. And Nate had the honors. That's all, folks. <laughs>